1: Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf with the Gentrifiers are back edition. We start 2022 with a new novel that features, among its storylines, a phenomenon familiar to those of us who live in cities. That phenomenon is gentrification. But as one should expect from science fiction by an author as talented as my guest today, this novel describes gentrification with a twist. Yes, some things are familiar, like people today with higher incomes who move into neighborhoods and push out the old timers with high rents and coffee boutiques. The gentrifiers in Tochi Onyabuchi's novel, Goliath, are coming into urban neighborhoods that have suffered from underinvestment and systemic racism. But unlike gentrifiers of today, who often leave behind comfortable suburban lives, the gentrifiers in Goliath are returning from comfortable lives on space stations where those with means had originally fled to escape pollution and environmental degradation on Earth. Tochi Onyebuchi is the author of Riot Baby, the Beasts Made of Night series, the War Girl series, and the nonfiction book Skinfolk. He has degrees from Yale, NYU, Columbia Law School, and the Paris Institute of Political Studies, and he is on the line with me from his home in new haven connecticut it's great to have you back on the show oh it is such a pleasure to be back always since you were on last year the book we talked about then riot baby has been a finalist for so many awards (laughs) hugo nebula locust to name a few and it's earned plenty of awards like the world fantasy award so i just wanted to start off by saying congratulations
0: Thank you. It still doesn't quite feel real um, to this day. Yeah, no, it's I've been so incredibly grateful and overwhelmed by the, you know, the reception that Riot Baby has received. It really is you know, beyond my wildest imaginings. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just
1: blessed. And you've had a very busy year this year as well. <laughs> I mean, you had a, a nonfiction Book come out skin folk and and then of course i i say this year because we're recording in 2021 i have to remember that this is airing in 2022 so really last year you had a busy year and this year uh 2022 is starting off busy as well because goliath comes out yes january 25th the big day Excellent. Excellent. Well, I hope you don't feel I in any way shortchanged Goliath in the opening because it's really about so much more than just gentrification. But that, I think, is just one of the key prisms that struck me. And it's one of the prisms through which you tell the story. But since there is a lot going on, there are a lot of characters and a lot of stories. I was curious to hear how you describe the book to people.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, my general... um elevator pitch is that Goliath is a is the story of a group of black and brown brick stackers in a post-apocalyptic post, post-climate event, New Haven, Connecticut, that have to deal with gentrifiers from space. So I, I think you hit the nail on the head.
1: Ah, okay, good, good. All right. Well, so I, I kind of want to talk about the general feeling that the book conveys. I think, you know, when we spoke last year, it was really, it wasn't long after George Floyd's murder. And and in this book, there is an oblique reference to it. I mean, there is a reference to it without naming him. So it's kind of a, a hi- important historic turning point. And last year, in the real world in in real life, it felt, I think, somewhat uh, like it was a it was a potentially positive turning point. I mean, there were so many murders of black and brown people by cops and vigilantes, like with Ahmad Arbery, for instance. But this feeling that it's set in motion a meaningful, hopefully meaningful reckoning with, with positive changes. But in Goliath, you are showing us a future, I think a few decades in the future, where those, you know, looking back on the events of today, they really mark a beginning of a turn for the worse. And we, there are privileged people who I think are mostly white and they're living in these, they call them colonies, the space stations <laughs> and and people who are on Earth, those who are left behind, couldn't afford to go. You know, they have to wear masks because the air is so polluted. There's radiation everywhere. There's a white supremacist nation out west. And and if you have money, I guess, or legentrifiers, gentrifiers, they you know, they can live under a dome. That's what they're doing. So they're sort of blocking out the out the world. So it's it's a it's a dark future building on what feels like the facts of recent history. So so I guess I want to just talk generally about that. And is this your prediction, your gut feeling about where things are going? Is it a cautionary tale, like we don't have to go there? So take it away.
0: <laughs> it's, it's funny. I've been thinking quite a bit recently about the... The idea of science fiction as a genre um, serving this, this social utility of prediction, right? We present these dystopian futures uh, to say, don't do this. Don't name your company this, most certainly. <laughs> don't develop this X technology. And inevitably, you know, we see the, the William Gibson novels start to come true. And so I don't know necessarily that. Science fiction novels can can be any sort of handbook for how to how to you know fight the forces of evil, so to speak, um, whatever form they may take. I think at the end of the day, science fiction and speculative fiction in, gen- in, in general is all about our now. is all about our present. You know, no matter how far flung into the future or how deep into the past or adjacent to our past a story may be set it's always saying something about the time in which it was written and i think what's interesting about setting a story like goliath in you know the 2050s is that it's very much about now and what's funny so i started writing goliath or at least the the short story that be, that ultimately became goliath um, was written in 2013, and then I started sort of building it into a novel probably around like 2015. And even in that draft, people were wearing masks, they were dealing with, with air quality issues, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, 2020 happens, at you know, at which point, I think by which point I'd, I, I'd sold the book, the people are walking around in masks and there's, you know, people are dealing with air pollution and so many of the things that had happened in the book. We're starting to become reality for a lot of a lot of people. Um, But really, Goliath is just in many ways about our now. I think what science fiction does allow us to do is it allows us to, you know, through the mechanism of thought experiments, push a certain push a certain social dynamic past its breaking point. I could look at, say, for instance, the the ways in which white supremacist organizations and militias organized themselves in the United States and the ways in which they, they have flourished over the past you know, half decade, certainly. Um, and I can extrapolate, okay, what might this look like if things turn for the worse? You know, if the people, if we see, for instance, the ways in which individuals or organizations can be emboldened to, you know, launch an attack on the Capitol building to prevent, you know, (laughs) the results of, of a presidential election being announced, what is it going to look like in the future when, you know, the social fabric is that much more frayed, you know, that sort of thing so much of the the environmental issues that are raised in the book are things that are happening you know say for instance in india one of the really big lodestones for me inspirationally for the book was the writings of um arundhati roy who in addition to writing the god of small things is also like a huge and hugely important and involved environmentalist and has all this incredible nonfiction that she's written about the social costs of the you know the various projects that the government has embarked upon, you know, the 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 ways in which entities like the World Bank are financially tied into the like environmental and economic oppression of lower classes in society. It's it's astounding, right? And so so much of that made its way into Goliath as well. And that stuff's happening now. Gentrification, you know, it's, it's, it's happening now, you know, the ways in which the ways in which, you know, or I guess you could say the cycle sometimes that cities and neighborhoods go through where they'll be inhabited by a certain class of people, but then they'll be drained of resources, you know, and you see it in, you know, for instance, the ways in which we use property tax to fund schools, right? They'll be drained of resources, desiccated, people will lose their homes. And then all of a sudden, these things become attractive to a a new sort of higher class in the social strata who, you know, move in and start to to make the thing their own. And like again, all of that is happening now. But you know, I throw, I I throw some sort of mutated beasts into the, into the mix and I put some neighborhoods in space and all of a sudden it's science fiction. And, And I feel like, I hope that if there is a sort of utility to science fiction, it's that it allows us or perhaps pushes us to look at our now and see, okay, what, what's going on? It's, it's diagnosis as opposed to a blueprint for a cure, if that makes any sense.
1: No, that does make sense. And so what are you telling us about our now? And maybe we could look at, you know, specifically some of the characters in the book. So when we're talking about gentrifiers, I think they're embodied in this couple, David and Jonathan, and they're returning from, it's it's funny, I have to say, it's funny, they're called the colonies. But really, I mean, <laughs> the, the they're living in this new space station. It's like virgin territory. It's not really a colony. And yet when they return to Earth, that's when it looks like a Mm they're colonizers you know they're coming back to earth or where they or their their parents lived i can't remember now i think they came as children too to the to the space stations so so really they become colonizers it seems when they're coming back but but what's going on for them i mean my sense is they're a little bored it's like too nice you know Mm -hmm. so so what's what's your sense can you tell us about what's driving them
0: So they were, for me, a vessel through which I could sort of critique and at the same time dramatize frontier narratives. You know, I've read a lot of Westerns and sort of Western-inflected literature You know, over the course of my my life and my career as a writer, and the ways in which people have written about the American West were very sort of fundamental in how I approached the characters of David and Jonathan. You know, in, in some instances, you know, you have people... Going out west historically for all sorts of reasons. Oh, that's where my fortune is. And maybe they come from sort of straightened circumstances. They've fallen on hard times back in the east. And they're like, oh, like there are no rules out there, I can so- totally remake myself. You know, they're on the run from the law, maybe. Or, you know, they're trying to fix their broken relationship. And they think, oh, if I if we just change the scenery that'll make things better we'll be able to start over and so the there's this idea in in Jonathan that you know things aren't working out between me and David it's the environment that's the problem we can make this work on earth you know we just need to you know it's it's new it's virgin territory it's it's this place where we can build something together and that in many ways is the animating impulse of course completely or almost completely disregarding the fact that earth is already home to a lot of people (laughs) and this whole idea of displacement and like and they they even joke about it too in that they recognize the even as they participate in them they recognize the frontier narratives that they're trying to sort of disparage or trying to be better than like we're not going to be like you know the we're not going to be like we're going to be like the first wave of pilgrims, not the ones with the smallpox blanket. You know, it's it's like it's like that sort of thing, and so that I think is you know there's there's no there's no more sort of American West the way that it used to be talked about, but I think a lot of that same dynamic, and a lot of the dynamic that I think fuels your fuels or fueled colonial you know pro- uh, projects, is at work there. Whenever there's a sort of gentrification, whenever people, I think, from a higher sort of caste, so to speak, decide to displace themselves willingly to go somewhere else where there are already people. Um, I think oftentimes what animates that is this this impulse to fix something internally or to address something internally. Maybe there's wanderlust, maybe you know they're trying to escape something emotionally or spiritually, or maybe they believe the thing that they're looking for, capital T thing, is in this new place, uh, so that that's some of what what is going on with David and Jonathan. And also, you know, I wanted to I wanted to really write into a lot of the subtext of the biblical relationship between the biblical, you know, David, eventual King David and Jonathan. There, in in many ways, these two characters are sort of positioned as the Israelites versus the Philistines, and one of the one of the questions that sort of served as an impellent for this story was, okay, what were the Philistines up to before they started beefing with the Israelites? And you know, before before that conflict, before that clash, before the David and Goliath story, you don't we don't really hear about the Philistines. We don't really know what they're what's going on with them, what their society's like. You know, is it is it patriarchal, matriarchal? What's their you know what religion, et cetera, et cetera we just learn of them in the context of their clash and eventual loss to the israelites and that very much interested me and that i think is a dynamic that we see replicated in gentrification narratives oftentimes and not just fiction but particularly reportage about gentrification there's never really any follow-up on the people who get pushed out you know there's there's talk of that clash And then people leave, but we don't find out where they go. You know, where do they get pushed to? Where do they disperse to? And that was something that I wanted to explore in Goliath. I don't know if that answers your question. but
1: (laughs) No, it's interesting. I mean, you're tying together a lot of threads. And I mean, it just speaks to the complexity of the book. There's a lot. You can read it on many different levels. I want to ask, I mean, there are just so many characters. So it's like, we could just (laughs) jump around, but... I was intrigued by many of them. I was particularly intrigued by the stories around Sydney, a young woman. We meet her... Initially in New Haven, but then we're, we flash back to her more of her origin, and she has such an interesting origin. She's in the desert with her father, and he's harvesting or collecting cacti in the desert, and he's live streaming the collection to collect bids from the col. Uh, the I keep I call them colonists. That's what they call themselves, but the the dudes in the in space, you know. And it's like, how much do, how much for this? And he, it's this weird mix of performance and entrepreneurialism and almost like circus performing kind of thing, but very dangerous what he's doing, but you don't, you know, the people doing the bidding are just bidding on the baubles as far as these exotic, rare uh, cacti. So anyway, it's, it's an interesting beginning, interesting story. So I want to ask about her. And then, you know, later she, she has another interesting turn. We could talk about both those things, I think. So, so what's going on with her in the beginning? Like what's, who is Sydney? Oh man.
0: She's, she's one of my favorite characters in part because you know, even still, she's so much of an enigma to me. And that is such a fascinating, I don't even want to call it dilemma as a writer. It's something I actually take quite a bit of pleasure in trying to figure out what's going on, what what the machinery is inside of a character that I'm writing. And, you know, sometimes I'll be be forced to sort of write around that. What are their circumstances? How did they grow up? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. What what animates them? What pushes them? What do they want? And so building out Sydney's story was was like really fun. I mean, it's it's incredibly tragic, but like that, it, I don't think it's a spoiler to say because that's pretty much backstory of like everybody in this book. But it was it was this wonderful opportunity to explore another part of the country sort of during this during this period, you know, the vast majority of the action in the book is set in New Haven, but these characters and such, and their, and their rich histories gave me this incredible canvas wherein I can make this not just a story about urban decay and urban renewal and all the ways in which that, you know, accumulates flesh and blood and bone, but the story of America sort of writ large in this time and place. And so, yeah, so there, there's like, there's an aspect of it that's funny. Like, there's humor in that her her dad is, like, selling these cacti <laughs> to people in space, and he does, as you pointed out, there's this whole performance. He's sort of like an auctioneer. And, you know, there's even a point where he, like he's getting one over on the buyers cuz like he'll be like oh this one's really 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 rare i got got a lot of people lined up for this one like da-da-da. and then and sydney in her head is like no there are like 50 million of those like in the desert in front of us right now so i also wanted to show some of what it can look like when you are forced to sort of pillage your own resources and so there's this there's this dynamic where I know there's a lot of reporting on it right now, the coltan mines in the DRC, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And one of the reasons there's a lot of reportage about that right now is because the U.S. just let a lot of their sort of mining concerns, uh, concerns being a financial sort of term of art, lapse. And China is swooping in and gobbling up all these, these sort of coltan deposits. And one of the reasons that coltan is so important is because it's in basically every electronic device in your house cell phone, laptop, all of that. It's one of the most valuable metals in the entire world. And oftentimes it occurs um, alongside copper, it's all this stuff. But the miners themselves, the artisanal miners, the people that are like doing the digging and all that stuff, are local Congolese. Who don't really see any of the the massive profits that the extraction of this resource gives them, But oftentimes you can see in situations like that and analogous situations, you know all these sorts of entrepreneurial, side alleys, right? Because you'll see communities like mining communities build up. And then you have people that need to sell, you know, whatever's, whatever's locally occurring to them, to these buyers who have varying levels of awareness of whether or not they're getting taken for a ride. But that was like, that was a thing that I wanted to sort of show as well, where it's like, this is what we have to do to survive. And it's not like, oh, I feel all this terrible guilt at taking this resource that, you know, these beautiful things things off of the land no it's like this is uh, like i'm just i'm making a buck like i'm trying to make a buck i'm trying to feed my daughter and so i know i've been talking a lot about sydney's dad but one of the reasons for that is that sydney's dad looms very much in her in her life his presence but also his absence and that was another thing that i wanted to play with with regards to these characters the, the way is the way in which familial absence colors their lives the ways in which it influences. Who they talk to, what they talk about, how they talk about it with people, you know, do they try to find replacements for these various figures, or do they walk around with this mom-sized ache, this father-sized ache, this brother-sized ache, constantly? Uh, And so that, like Sydney, was such an incredible character to write through and to write around and in many ways she provides a sort of through line for a lot of the emotional undercurrents of the book but yeah but also too like she she, like she she and her dad and, and her younger sister live on the the you know the texas mexico border and there's like this you know they have this crew of like mexican smugglers that they're just like chilling with and i i was very fortunate in that i was able to find a lot of humor in Sydney scenes, and humor that occurred naturally, just sort of humor as a natural resource in these scenes. Because it is, you know, it's an emotionally heavy book. And in a way that I sometimes see as a contrast to Riot Baby. Riot Baby's very condensed, it's very sort of concentrated, claustrophobia was kind of the point, and it's very much pitched at this, this almost incandescently angry register for like a lot of the book, uh, to the extent that I knew I couldn't really go past like 176 pages with that book because that was just emotionally unsustainable. Goliath gave me a larger sort of emotional canvas to play with and I could do, uh, I could do a lot of different registers emotionally. And so it seems like Sydney's allowed me to oscillate between those registers and to really play with tone in very interesting ways. And so, yeah, no, I, I love Sydney. I love Sydney so much.
1: Yeah. Would you mind talking just a little bit more about her because it's very intriguing that she later in the book comes upon these horses which I guess are I can, I I'm not I, mean, I was never sure if they're actually wild horses or they had been domestic horses that are just wandering around. So, but anyway, there are these horses that seem to have no particular home other than nature and she returns to the site and brings them back to New Haven and creates a barn, uh, you know, a stable. And they become a source of kind of wonder and fascination for everyone. You know, I mean, it's sort of an anomaly almost. What are these horses doing here? So it feels like both an adventure and, it, you know, just kind of a, a, a kind of surprising plot twist, but also fraught with symbolism, I think. And I just wonder what, <laughs> if you could just talk about that, what that means to Sydney or what the horses mean to the story.
0: Yeah, no, another dynamic with Sydney um, was that she it, is that she's very connected to the natural environment. She's very attuned to things. So, you know, it's important that it's it's her that initially finds the, you know, the horses. And even when she, you know, she first brings Tamika, another stacker, Tamika's like, how did you know this was here? You know, <laughs> and, and Sydney, for reasons that that are, you know, revealed in the book is not much of a talker and. Oftentimes when you don't sort of communicate in a way that a lot of people see as sort of typical, you find other things to sort of connect with. And so that was one of the like she she like listens to trees and bugs and like she she's very attuned. Like her dad, like, you know, picks cacti and she, you know, just for survival had to know. different sounds her footfalls would make on sand and on desert ground because not knowing could result in a very violent end and so like yeah she's you know she's she's sort of the the leader of the crew that pulls off the heist so to speak you know which was a really fun element to throw into the book and you know i really wanted to to ram home this idea of the sort of incongruity of the horses in this environment but also show that like you know the, a lot of this place is sort of grown over right like there's it's not maintained the roads are very you know it's very sort of the last of us in, in certain respects but um you know these horses which are like a naturally occurring thing in nature feel otherworldly here, even though here is also still nature now because of the horrible things that like mankind did and then left. Yeah. So there's, there's all that stuff swirling around. And so I was very fortunate to have in Sydney, a character who, you know, could provide that connection because it was very important to be able to show how the characters related to their to the natural environment and not just the city that they live in. Were there any other
1: characters you wanted to talk about? Who 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 is the most <laughs> who is the most difficult for you to write? It's funny,
0: Ally Allison. And it's funny because there's a lot of her in the book, <laughs> you know. But it's like it's funny I'm surrounded by by well-meaning white allies in my, you know, for, and and have been for so, so, so long, but capture, trying to capture that voice like, and, and in a way that doesn't caricature her, right, trying to capture that voice and put it in a sort of full bodied person and not have them come across as a stereotype. That I think might've been the most difficult thing to finesse because it's It's a very, I think, delicate balance to strike where you want to show the thing that you're critiquing and you want to be able to critique it. But at the same time, you don't want you don't want a reader to not care about a character and to not care about what a character has to say. And so I I needed to I needed to make all of that work.
1: And she's she's a reporter, right? She's come in. to Like describe the work that they're doing give it you try to humanize or i don't know i'm not actually i don't remember who she's writing for actually who's the audience
0: oh it's a it's a number a number it's what what was funny about her pieces um and and you know to those who who have or who will read the book who weren't sure you know she is the author of all of the reported pieces in the book you know it's a variety of publications that i kind of tried to to mimic there and and that format wise, it was interesting to, to try to sort of mimic, you know, there's a, you know, there's an Esquire piece. There's a, you know, a short piece that, you know, could see a home in the London review of books. There's a, you know, uh, I don't know, a piece that might have a home in the Virginia quarterly review. Like, so the people who read those magazines, those publications of the people who read articles in those places, they're her sort of audience. And, Oftentimes, it can sort of zero in on this sort of this this urbane, upper middle class, usually white demographic. Right. You know, with various sort of skews to the left or right with regards to the the publication. But, yeah, like that as difficult as she was. To write those pieces were a lot of fun because I I like read all of those publications. And so I wouldn't have necessarily felt comfortable trying to capture their tone or or do a pastiche of their tone had I not read as much of them as as I do. So it was a lot of fun. Like, I don't know that there were that there were any characters I, I shied away from writing or that were difficult in a way that made me not want to write about them or that made writing their scenes difficult. They were all challenging. All of them presented their own challenges, but they were all challenges that I was eager to engage in
1: as a writer. And it took many years, it sounds like, you started. I mean, this has been in the works a while. And it's, (laughs) I mean, I can understand why, too, because it's a complex story with a lot of interwoven characters and places and even some time jumps and things. Mm -hmm. So, So I imagine it was, well, I don't know if there's any insight you can offer just into the process of creating the book.
0: Oh man, it went through. It went through a lot of iterations. It's funny, Goliath is fundamentally different from everything else that I've written because it is the it is the first and so far only piece of long fiction that I've written out of order. This isn't to say that I'm a consummate planner, but I generally know what's going to happen before it happens in the story to varying extents. You know, sometimes I have or all I have is a one-page synopsis. Other times, I will have scene-by-scene breakdowns of each chapter, whatever a chapter might look like in a particular book. But this book, the short story that, that spawned it, is a series of scenes that occur in the sort of first section, but a ways into the first section. And then I started writing some of the scenes that appear in Fall, but like out of order. And then... You know, I went back to the the section that's called summer and then I hopped over to spring and I think winter, because the book, you know, sort of ostensibly takes place over the the course of a year or the the present day, quote unquote present day action takes place over the course of a year. And the, the section called winter, I think, was the last section of new material that I wrote for the book. And I don't know that winter existed when I sold the book. It certainly didn't exist in the earlier, you know, iterations of of the book. I mean, this is probably the draft that's circulating now <laughs> in these arcs is, is probably I'd say draft number number five or six, somewhere around there. And yeah, like there were large chunks of the book that didn't exist in between in between those drafts, um, and so it was an absolutely terrifying process. Like not necessarily knowing what exactly was going to happen when, but thrilling at the same time. Um, it really felt like writing this book. I was pushing myself to the edges of my abilities as the as the writer that I was at the time that I wrote this book, and whew, it was a roller coaster.
1: What's next for you? What are you working on now? What's what's on the horizon for 2022?
0: Oh man, I you know, I'm eager to let Goliath breathe a little bit. I don't know that I have anything on the horizon or at least anything that I can talk about publicly that, you know, I'm not buried under, you know, a Mount Rushmore of NDAs um, about right now. But one thing that that is sort of ongoing, I'm, I'm very lucky to be doing a miniseries for Marvel Comics. It's a Black Panther Legends. It's uh, uh, targeted at young readers as a retelling of the origins of Black Panther, uh, focusing on uh, the childhood of a young T'Challa. It is and has been such an extraordinary thing to write, so much fun, but also super meaningful i mean marvel you know for me in my experience has been a dream workplace um i've had an incredible editor there and and you know so there's that trying to think is there anything else probably got some short stories with my name on them like you know floating somewhere out there in the ether but like i'd say goliath is like the big thing
1: wonderful well it's a great story thank you so much for coming back on uh, new books in science fiction Thank you for having me. Again, such a pleasure. I have been speaking with Tochi Onyabuchi about Goliath from Tor.com. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already a subscriber. And please think about giving the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts michael aaron of quivernyc.com composed our theme music i'm rob wolf and i edit the show marshall poe is editor and founder of the new books network and leanne wilson is the co-editor be well and keep reading